I have a dream. One day, every nursery will have a mud kitchen. Today I'm talking to Professor Jan White. Jan is a leading thinker and writer on outdoor play and an advocate for nature-rich outdoor provision for services for children from birth to seven. She works as an early childhood consultant across the UK, Ireland and internationally. Jan has over 38 years experience in education and has developed a deep commitment to the consistently powerful effect of the outdoors on young children. With a childhood love of rocks and soil, leading to a degree in soil science, a master's in ecology, and a postgraduate teaching certificate in science and outdoor education, she realizes that she has always been at heart a committed modologist. Jan co-authored the globally influential booklet, Making a Mud Kitchen, available in 12 languages, and is author of Playing and Learning Outdoors, now in its third edition. She is Honorary Professor of Practice with the University of Wales, Trinity St. David, and founder of Early Childhood Outdoors, the national organization for play, learning, and well-being outdoors. Welcome, Professor Jan White. Hi, Jan. You're very welcome to the Nature Magic podcast. Hi, Mary. Um, thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're so welcome. Um, I want to hear all about your website, earlychildhoodoutdoors.org. But first, what really grabbed me, could you tell us about the success of your book, Making a Mud Kitchen? Oh, right. yes. Oh, gosh, where do I start with that? Um, that's been a lifetime's passion. I played with the earth a great deal myself as a child. Um, perhaps I'll come back to the story about digging to Australia, uh, which um, I've shared with many, many people, and it's very interesting to think oh, about. Start. Why don't you start? Well, maybe I, I could start with that then. So, um, when I was a child, one of the, you know, when you think about your childhood, some things stand out in terms of the play that you did. And one of the things that stands out for me, and I saw it so much again with my son, was that young children love to dig. So I sort of, you know, this really resonated for me because I remember digging such a lot as a child. So I've been sort of uh, exploring the, the whole story of sort of why do humans dig? I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet with an answer, but um, I've got some thoughts. My memories, which are so very strong for me, is that one of the things my parents did that was very magical for us was that they didn't have a tidy garden. So we lived in a rural place, a new new development that was farmland previously in a village in Kent. So I had a very um, fortunate childhood that from, especially from the age of five till 10, when we lived in this particular place I'm thinking of, we were able to play in the garden, play out on the street and, and roam up to kind of I, I get, it felt like forever, but it was probably about a mile away. I have no mm -hmm. idea. Our garden itself, my dad dug a hole and filled it with sand. And we had this glorious sandpit that which just sat on the on the ground underneath. And um, the ground that our house was built on, I think might have been a pottery beforehand. So when you dug, you found stuff and finding bits of pottery. And I remember even finding a Victorian penny. Oh my goodness, that's oh, so brilliant. And, and the feeling of hunting and finding, I really know how archaeologists uh, feel. 
And I spent many, many years in my teens wanting to be an archaeologist. Um, but the thing about the digging was, as I recall it, and I'm thinking between the age of five and ten, that the feeling of the digging was that we were going to dig forever and that we would dig right through the centre of the earth and come out in Australia. Funnily enough, I, I actually found a, a kind of app on the internet a few months ago that, could, that showed you what is the opposite side of the world. And I found out that actually we would have come up in the sea quite near to New Zealand, <laughs> which, uh, which is perfect because I'd love to live in New Zealand. Um, but we definitely had the story that we were digging to Australia. And part of that memory is that this, this digging that we were doing was that there were people digging back from the other side and that we would meet in the middle kind of thing. I guess this was before I knew about the geology, the structure of the earth. What I did know is that it, you, know, you could go through it. I imagined that the Australians were digging back and that we'd meet them halfway and that we were sharing the task as well. There's probably was a lot of Australian children digging as well. Well, now there's a story in that one too, because I've been, um, I've spent a lot of time traveling and, and sharing my work with other people who are interested in children's play in nature. I've had the opportunity to ask Australians and Kiwis, were you digging back? And when I first went to Australia, I was certain that they were, they were digging back because I spent my whole life believing that. And I was horrified. I can't tell you how jarring it was to discover that, yes, they were digging. And I think it's a universal that children do dig, but they were digging to China. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me, I, well I haven't got over it now and that's kind of eight nine years ago but you know it took me several years to kind of come come to terms with the fact that they weren't actually digging back and I've decided that perhaps Australians aren't as kind of aspirational as us because <laughs> like half the task of digging right the way through I can understand Americans well in a way no because America to China is really not that aspirational is it but I have discovered that there were quite a few Kiwis who were digging to England. Oh. So, uh, you know, another reason why oh. I like New Zealand. That was the inspiration as well so, for the book. So, yes, bringing me back to that. So I think the digging, digging is clearly something that children, a lot of children do when they're in, you know, offered the right circumstances. And we certainly were because we had kind of free opportunity to dig in our garden. When I think back and what my mum, my mum's desire to have a lovely flowery garden. Yeah, I know we have a sandpit at the Borough Nature Sanctuary for the smaller children in the playground and there's a construction site and every evening we have to refill the hole they have been digging to Wonderful. Australia and if one goes and starts digging the whole crew, doesn't matter if they know each other or not, they all <laughs> join in with buckets and spades and they've made a ginormous hole before you even know it. So this really needs a proper study, doesn't it? And, and have you picked up that Australia is where they're digging to? Or? Oh, no, they're just constructing stuff. They're, it's more like a building site. They're like, you get this, you get that, dig here, give me the I shovel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yes, I think, I, mean, I think it needs a PhD and, and more to actually discover what is it, the human drive. There's a, a very strong psychological, physical drive to dig into the earth. So that was my starting point, was the, the, the experiences of trying to dig uh, a tunnel. And the film The Great Escape was current at that time, too. So that was part of our imagination. Um, but the uh, other thing that was happening, of course, was the finding and discovering 
and that incredible high of, of finding a Victorian penny and things like that. As a young adult, I went to university and studied soil science. And I traced the roots back to this fascination of, uh, I wanted to study geology, earth science, and I ended up studying soil science. And these days I call myself a mudologist. <laughs> it's actually how I, you know, when I uh, do a conference speech, I'll introduce myself as mudologist because what I, I've made the word up, I think. Um, but what I mean by that is I study children's relationship to the earth. And I think that's the important thing. I'm fascinated with how children play, mm. what drives them in their play and how the environment provides not just the medium for play, but actually the play partner, the dialogue between the child and their environment and the natural environment. Mm. And I'm particularly drawn to the earth. Rocks and soil have been a, a core part of my life, my whole life. So the mud kitchen booklet, finally get there. What is a mud kitchen? Okay, a mud kitchen describes an area that you may well have had as your in your childhood, where you got some pots and pans and sand or soil and water, and you just concocted. Um, you know, you might have had a few old Tupperware pots or metal saucepans and some wooden spoons, that kind of thing. Nothing fancy at all. Um, certainly nothing constructed in my childhood. The idea was just when there were materials like earth and sand and water and you mix them together, it's alchemy. You get this magical transformation that something with a set of properties becomes something so different. And um, so a mud kitchen in my mind Certainly when I started writing about it, the idea of a mud kitchen really held what I saw very young children doing, which is a two-year-old might fill up a pot uh, and mix it with water and then offer it to an adult and say, I've made you a cup of tea. And then you might add some sand and say, that's the sugar. So it's that kind of what I noticed with very young children and it starts around two with just mixing and transferring and then it goes up through the years and children start to bake a birthday cake or make hot chocolate. Or it starts to become, if you've got a lot of clay in there and you can mould it, it can start to become things like sausages and pizzas and bread. And then in about around a five-year-old, it starts to get magical properties. You start to get the kind of Harry Potter effect of being able to think of it as a witch's potion or some kind of magical brew with powers and that goes on if allowed children will play like that way through to 10 plus uh, I actually um, ended up teaching chemistry <laughs> which, again exactly what I was doing uh, with that kind of play just looking at how materials behave and how when you mix them together something else comes out of it and it is totally magical it's it's transfixing to watch things change like that and to be the one who has made that change happen mm -hmm. but something else about the mud kitchen is is this way that when you do this physical transforming it helps the brain start to develop imaginary transforming so this material so comfortably becomes a cup of tea a cup of coffee with sugar it you know you watch this in two and three-year-olds and it's a very very common kind of play um, I once watched a child put very, very carefully 
layer leaves over the top of her pot to keep it warm, to keep the coffee hot. (laughs) 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 And uh, so, you know, it's uh, the materials, as we know, the natural materials are really, really powerful in helping children develop intellectual thinking. Yeah, my most favourite memory of childhood was in Lancashire. And my brother was probably about eight. He's four years older than me. I was four and my sister was maybe 10. And there's a very small brook and we were making dams. Mm. So, you know, we were getting the clay and the sticks and we were changing the course of the little brook. And it went on for hours and days, probably the full two weeks of the holiday every summer. Um, But it was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually, that's another strand of play that you see so commonly is stream damming. I'm, I'm worried actually that children nowadays don't get so much of that because that, that occupied us a great deal. Another thing that occupied us a huge amount of time was den building. Mm-hmm. So that's another theme that I'm really curious about. Um, anyway, to go back to the mud kitchen story. So that's a mud kitchen is basically the opportunity for a child to take natural materials like sand, water and soil and so on and to just mix them and, and create new materials. My daughter at age four gave me the word concocting, which is just gorgeous, because that to me is the heart of a mud kitchen. And the, the physical heart to a mud kitchen is just having a surface to work on. Okay, so like a table, an outside table. Yes, so this is sort of when it starts to resemble the kitchen. So the kitchen, calling it a mud kitchen, I, I think nowadays I'd probably call it a mud laboratory, but that fits better what children in middle childhood, primary age children are doing. Mm-hmm. And when it does become that more kind of scientific inquiry and magical fantasy mm-hmm. type stuff. Whereas with very small children, which is the, I, I work with the age range from birth to five. And what I see in that is children making food. Wow. So so <laughs> the, the word kitchen fits. Yeah. What has happened is as the idea has taken hold, which, I mean, it's phenomenal that everywhere you go, you go to National Trust Properties now and they've got a mud kitchen. And I know that the booklet that we produced was part of causing that to happen. Yeah, and it's um, around, it's gone around the world, hasn't it? Absolutely. Jeff? Oh, it didn't start with us. I was picking up a lot of, of this kind of stuff. And maybe mm. for me, the word mud kitchen may well have come from Australia. Okay. Um, there was a lovely blog um, from Jenny. I can't remember her name now. Uh, anyway, there was a lovely blog I used to uh, read avidly, and she presented a lot of stuff around mud kitchen type play. So I may well have got the name from her. Um, but it wasn't common here. I had friends who had mud kitchens type offer in their nurseries, but it wasn't the universal offer it is now with that kind of play for all sorts of reasons. So in my childhood, which was in the 50s, it was normal. That's what children did. Um, and then that sort of changes because, of course, culture changes and fears and concerns and expectations and all sorts of things change. And what seemed to have happened was that small children weren't so often being able to play in that way. And I think the idea of the mud kitchen has, in the way it's been adopted so enthusiastically by um, nursery practitioners, says that they were really wanting to bring this back into children's lives. And, and the idea of a mud kitchen actually held the possibility of bringing that back to children. It was a kind of tangible thing that we could do that then opened up that kind of play. 
So children, that was the first thing is that children got to play with the earth again. And the other thing is that's very important in early years education is uh, that a mud kitchen allows children to do their own thing. So it's what we term child-led play. Yeah. That instead of adults deciding what children will do, we're very committed in the early years to, to child-initiated and child-led play. Yeah. And that's what a mud kitchen does. It really makes that possible. Yeah. So would you like to tell us if you have a favourite plant or animal? Well, I can never constrain myself to a single answer. <laughs> I don't know if you've found this with everybody. Sort of saying, what's your favourite? Yeah. I thought I'd give you a multiple answer. Good, good. go um, for it. The, uh, my favourite tree is the beech. And I think that's because um, it's kind of our redwood tree. It's our magnificent, stunning, I, I, it's hard to put into words, but you know, when you're in a beech woodland, which we have some gorgeous ancient beech woodland in Sheffield, quite extensive, and the feeling of being in a beach woodland is just remarkable uh, at any time of the year. Um, and, and of course, beaches provide uh, a habitat for so much else. I mean, I think the oak actually does more uh, and, and it's hard to choose between oak and beach, but I've always sort of said beach are my favorite. One of the reasons I would say, actually I've just twigged, ha, twigged, is when, one of the things that stands out from my childhood are some of the places we would play in and, and the landmark features that were in that place. So we were able to go to um, what was a Victorian garden and it was overrun by rhododendrons, which make a very kind of witchy, scary kind of environment when they're very overgrown. But that also had some very big beech trees in it. And there was one that we called the elephant tree because it was shaped like an elephant trunk and, and the branch that was the trunk was low enough down that we could climb into it. And certainly tree climbing is another thing that I did such a lot of as a child and it's fascinated me uh, what it is about tree climbing that's so important for children. And again, something that is far less common now. Yeah. It's deeply um, ingrained in children when they see trees. Truly is, yeah. So with the beech tree, it being a kind of elephant and that feeling when you look at a beech tree, you see that's huge size, don't you? And you get that real long life feeling that this thing is much older than I could ever be. And the trunk of the beech is beautiful and the canopy, everything about it. My favourite plant is completely opposite. It's ivy-leaved toad flax. Oh. You know ivy-leaved toad flax? Uh, I think I love it most because of its name. Um, I'm a real fan of children coming up with their own names for things rather than being given the names by adults because I want children to be able to look really closely and for a long time at things and if the adult offers the name of it it sort of closes down the inquiry I feel this is something I learned um, through my role as a primary teacher working outdoors um, but uh, I believe Tofax is just such a fascinating name it's such a lovely one to get your mouth around. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful little plant growing in the tiny crevices in a, in a wall, wow. in a really difficult place. So um, all sorts of things of it. But my ultimate answer uh, is my favorite animal. I don't know if it's my favorite animal, but it's the animal 
that if I if reincarnation exists and I was able to come back, I would come back as an otter. <laughs> and mostly that's because otters have such unbelievable flexibility, joy and freedom. So, so I can't give you a quick answer because I could just keep going. There's so many things. Part of the uh, my life story with otters is I studied, um, I did a master's degree in ecology in North Wales, Bangor. And we were involved in um, the, a big national survey on where the presence of otters. Now, you'd think that in North Wales, with the streams coming down from Snowdonia, going to the sea, you would expect otters. And we worked our way along a river, a team of us, and found nothing. Oh. This was 1979, 78, 79. And now otters are all over the country. They're one of the huge success stories in terms of um, not just conservation, but restoration of wildlife. Why and do you think they had... Why they diminished? Yeah, yeah diminished. Uh, there's multiple reasons. It was a lot to do with the, the quality of the streams and the lack of food, lack of uh, places to hide up and have their young. I, I, I'm not sure of all the details. So I think there, are, there were multiple reasons. And certainly um, part of the comeback is because they became a protected species. Well, I hope, you do, I hope you do reincarnate as an otter. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that, that be incredible? What so, about a sea otter in the Arctic where you can have a lovely... I, I think coat? when I say otters, it's hard to decide between river and sea otters. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Canada and you see a lot of sea otters there. Uh, and um, yeah... Oh, I mean, adorable. The, the opportunity to spend your life lying on your back, supported by kelp, <laughs> with a baby lying across your tummy, <laughs> and just doing the odd, you know, preening and and, and a then couple just of stones under your arms for yeah. bashing oh, shells. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Just a really excellent life. There's um, a book called uh, it was it's a sword in the stone. You remember the Disney film Sword in yeah. the Stone? So the original book by T. H. White. Uh, the first part of the book called The Once and Future King. Young Arthur, he's called Wart in the book, he gets transformed by Merlin into other animals so that he can experience life as animals. And he learns lots by being that animal. And one of the animals he gets transferred into is Otter. It's a book that I yeah. am looking forward to reading again. Um, it's a really beautiful book. The learning of actually being another animal and experiencing the world as another animal must have a really profound influence. And this is part of what children do, isn't it? In, in their imaginary play, they become other. And they think about what it's like to be other. Uh, and that's really, really important for all sorts of reasons. But one is that that actual relationship with the, the rest of life mm. and being able to think about it and, and care about it and be responsive. Empathy. Have a completely different attitude to the world, the others that we share the world with. It brings an empathy. And also, I think children are less likely to confine themselves to the five senses because, you know, we know octopuses and different animals have senses that we don't eat, but obviously bats. And lately, I've been learning from a horse trainer called Warwick Schiller about energy in horses and mm. projecting energy. And obviously they're a herd animal and they, you know, turn on a sixpence and they all gallop off together. 
Um, and there are all these different senses that we actually don't experience, but children are more likely to try and put themselves yes. in place. Yes, it would be, wouldn't it be a, a gorgeous educational approach, mm. kind of ecological education, where children were encouraged and enabled to be, to take the persona and the life of, of other kinds of creatures. That's beautiful. Uh, That's your next be, book now. It would be very formative, <laughs> wouldn't it, to, yeah. uh, to do that. Yeah. So you obviously do feel spiritually connected to nature. Um, I was chatting to you before and you were talking about sort of, I don't know how you explained it, but it was really wonderful blending into nature or is, I don't know if you want to explain a bit. Well, my answer to, yeah, do I feel spiritually connected? And I, I, I've never, nothing comes to my mind as a kind of an episode, a spiritual experience that suddenly had an influence on me. And it makes me think that basically I'm in that state all the time. <laughs> which I really, really appreciate now. But it, it, it is the case that for me, I have been to some, I travel a lot all over the planet. Uh, feel rather responsible for the amount of air miles that I consumed, but I'm working on that. But I've been to some really, really dramatic places. But then I look at a dandelion growing just outside my back door and I get the same kind of feeling. And I think that's the real gift I was given through my childhood play is that I have that feeling with everything in nature. And they do more and more feel like my kin, that they are my family. Um, my family, my parents emigrated to Canada and I stayed in England when I was 17. Um, so I think that, that nature has very much been my family. And, and provided that sort of relationship, belonging, kinship that is so core to the work I do. So I think that certainly for me, the spirituality is certainly there, um, but it's with everyday nature. Mm. And the, the, like that, you know, when I see ivy-leaved toad flax growing in a wall, I'll actually say, oh, look at you. Aren't you gorgeous? <laughs> I'm not, and I'm not talking to the plant to help it grow. It's my expression of the feeling I have when I see it. Um, and I feel really, really grateful that I have that way of, of feeling in the world. It's very, very nice. Um, so it's interesting because I'm... The work I do now, which we'll talk about in a bit, it, the, the, the symbol for the work is a dandelion. And it, I chose it because it's one of my favourite plants. But it turns out to be a, a stunning metaphor for what I'm doing. Um, and I have the, the logo. It's actually a painting that my daughter did for me of a dandelion from outside my back door. <laughs> so I'm very keen on the idea that we notice and appreciate what, what, we, what we have on a doorstep and that we uh, enable children to grow up with that feeling yeah. of, of um, gratitude, appreciation, kinship, mm. everything. And what does the dandelion symbolise then in the logo? <gasps> oh, that would take me half an hour because I keep revealing more and more layers. Okay, a few layers, a few layers. <laughs> yeah, well, the first thing is the dandelion is beloved by children. It's one of the best play materials. It grows abundantly, so it's absolutely no problem if children pick them. 
Um, I mean, I guess people relate to picking daisies and making daisy chains and the, the lovely abundance of daisies and you could just sit there and be with them. Um, and knowing in the knowledge, you know, I can pick these because they'll grow back. Because at the moment, I think we're quite obsessed with saying to children, don't harm nature. My bonding with nature happened because I did I interacted with nature. Every day on the way home from school, I used to walk a mile home from school on my own, age five. I had a sister, but we walked separately <laughs> once I knew the route. I think she probably took me a few times and then we'd, we'd do our own thing. But I have lots of memories of wandering home from school, uh, picking wildflowers from the verges and arriving home with a bunch of flowers that I gave to my mum wow. that were, you know, just gathered from the verges. So the plants that you can do that with, plants that are abundant enough that you can just pick them and do whatever with, um, and they will come back. Uh, is, is, so dandelions are a great compromise because, you know, actually gardeners, well, the tradition is that you remove dandelions, which I've always said, if I set up my own nursery, I would purposefully put dandelion seeds <laughs> on the lawn because I would want dandelions. I want materials that children can pick. So they grow very abundantly and they become plain materials and they create that lovely relationship. Um, so they are stupendous plain materials. But another thing about the dandelion flower is it's joyous. It's got this wonderful strong yellow is such a big contrast to rape the sort of yellow fields of rape that's got this in, insipid yellow color um and then you see a field of grass that organic grass being grown for the cows that's full of dandelions and it's such a different look you know the yellowness of dandelions when they're in abundance is really stunning i admire dandelions ecologically because they are super successful and I think of them as um, optimistic plants that take advantage of every opportunity, which is they are. Ecologically, that's what they are. But that's what we want to do for children. We want them in early childhood education. We want them to grow up with an optimistic can-do attitude, you know, a growth mindset that I can tackle anything, a resilience that I can come back from things. Um, and... Uh, um, I can take advantage of every opportunity that comes along in my life or even make opportunities for myself. So it's a lovely metaphor in that respect. Mm, so and you the, can just keep going. Yeah, the dandelion uh, is a great teacher. In Nature is a great teacher. And when you look at all sorts of um, properties of nature, how it works, they, there are lots and lots of teachings all the time. Um, but yes, dandelion is is it just keeps going the root the whole plant is is edible um the way it disperses its seeds you know wishes and telling the time and all of that stuff um it, it just fits and it, it fits keep every time I look at what I'm trying to do in my work these days the dandelion seems to be a metaphor for what's going on mm. and what you're yeah. doing at the moment is you're spreading seeds of the um, dispersal of the yeah. dispersal, they disperse so well, the dandelions. So I hope yeah. your dispersal is yes. as good as the yes. dandelions. And, and they can cope. They land on all sorts of places and cause growth. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So do you have anything you'd like to suggest to people to protect the planet or support nature? Well, the, I think I've been saying it the whole time I've been talking with you. 
is that I think the key to what we need to be doing is to help children grow up with something they're born with, which is an affinity for the natural world. I mean, that, you know, I'm an, I look at things through kind of evolutionary biology perspective. That's my background and that's the way I think, this way it's understand things. Um, and we need to have a relationship and knowledge about our world in order to survive. So the idea of biophilia, which is that we are innately affiliated with nature, really works for me. Mm-hmm. And I, what I've seen in, in, in the last decade, I've really studied babies and toddlers in the outdoors. I'm fascinated by very young children outdoors. And it, I see this all the time, this sort of innate affinity, interest, being drawn to and having a relationship with the natural world. So it's there. Mm. Can you can you give an example of a very small child and, and what kind of actions they're doing? And I know Ooh. they love the mud kitchens and everything, but maybe uh, something I, would spring to mind. I, the one thing that jumps into my mind there is that I went to a group of nurseries in Italy that are very highly respected and revered around the world. It's a town called Reggio Emilia, and they've been developing um, an approach to early childhood education since the Second World War. Wow. You know, they've had a very long time to develop what they're doing. And I visited um, a setting that is for the smallest children. They call them nests, nido. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Not a preschool not a pre-anything you know this is babies and toddlers need a nest um and we weren't able to see the children because we were a large group so we went in just after the children had gone but they'd left out what the children had been doing and I saw this really magical thing that they they the children had so these would be toddlers they put um slices of tree trunk they'd line them up which is something small children like to do often line things up so they were in a sequence but what was really beautiful was that each tree slice had a flower on it like a daisy or a dandelion or something that had been picked from the environment and each one had a flower now if you were looking at that very formally you could say oh that's one-to-one correspondence that's a very mathematical thing to do but I didn't see that at all what I saw was that the children had given a gift for each like me giving my mum a bunch of flowers from the verges going home from school that each piece of tree trunk had a one or two little picked flowers on it and it was it, it was it that's what it really spoke to me to say that the the children had gifted the wood with a little prezi and that that's an example I said I mean you know the, the things that small children do are really small things and you could overlook them um, but when you look closely, they're there all the time. Yeah, we should look more carefully and we should. Yeah. Mm. So, so the biophilia, I think that theory has uh, a lot of credence. It fits very well with my understanding of things. Um, and I see it all the time that small children are very affiliated. I mean, every early years nursery does a project on mini beasts and they'll spend time focusing on mini beasts because they know how interested children are. Um, so my my thing that I would want to do is that, that we keep that going, that we help children not to lose it, because our culture has been, over the last few decades, 
an erosion of valuing that. So that by children are teenage, by the time children are teenagers, the thing they are desiring is a new pair of trainers or whatever. You know, that's I'm part of the um, the generation that was crafted into being a purchaser. The whole marketing world mm. working on giving me a desire to go and buy new stuff. Um, so what I would want is that we hold on to that innate fascination and affiliation for nature and that we grow up feeling that we're part of it so I, I use the term ecological identity and that is that that people feel not separate from the natural world that I have a cultural identity that I belong to my culture whatever that is and I have an ecological identity which is I don't feel separate I feel part of it is my family it's my it's me you know and so I can't harm anything in nature because to do so would hurt me couldn't hurt my brother or sister because that would hurt me very nicely Um, phrased very nicely I think ecological identities are really smashing found it in this book called the goodness of rain and the title is developing an ecological identity in young children Mm. and it's the story of a child who's 18 months old and her relationship with and how the adults with her maintained that relationship and, and helped to develop it. Um, and when I came across this phrase, ecological identity, that just summed up, that really held all the things I'd been working on my entire life. Yeah. Uh, and in the last couple of decades have become have become the foreground of my life. Well, um, well, we'll put the name of the book in the show notes. Yeah. The author. Are there any other books yeah. you'd like to recommend? Well, I was expecting <laughs> you to ask me this. So. Um, in the same way that I couldn't answer you with one for the favourite plant or animal, what I worked out was to give you one book per decade. Oh, lovely. And we'll put them <laughs> all in the show notes so people can check them out. Okay. So um, I think my very earliest ones, my first book that always comes to my mind from my youth is My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. That had such a big influence on me. And actually, the other book relates to Otter's Ring of Bright Water. Yeah. So I've got two books for my teens. In my 20s, I became a teacher and I was working in environmental education. Um, I had the most remarkable opportunity to be a primary teacher with a 62-acre nature reserve as my classroom every single day. Fantastic. Um, not the same children, working with all the children at the, in the city of Oxford and the county of Oxfordshire. Um, and the book that absolutely led me was Sharing Nature with Children by Joseph Cornell. Okay. So this book, I looked, it's 1979 it was published. I find a lot of the really good stuff is, is old. Um, but this has been updated. There's a 20th anniversary, but you know, by now there should be a 40th, 40th anniversary. Joseph Cornell is still going, still writing, still influencing millions of people around the world. Um, but sharing nature with children absolutely um, fitted with what I wanted to do with the children um, as a primary teacher um, and, and really shaped the development and I think it's sat under my whole approach as an educator very very influential book professionally as well as personally the next one is actually a little different in that in the next decade of my life I became a mum 
So what struck me was the books that mattered were the books that we sh I shared with my children. I have four for that. One's called Grandfather Twilight, which is a truly magical book. Each night, Grandfather goes to a chest and picks out a pearl. And then he walks into the forest and gives it to the sky. Hey, it chokes me up. What is pulled out is it's a very beautiful book. The illustrations are exquisite. It's by Barbara Berger, 1996, it was published. Yeah, it is my, my daughter's reaction to this book. Um, I think we must have read this every night for several years, kind of, because it's a nighttime book. Uh, and it's very magical. It's a very beautiful way to, to go off to sleep, to give yourself to the nighttime. My, another book that was just really super during that time is Frederick by Leo Leone. It's a, it's the, the, the illustrations are so lovely, but the story is what captures me. It's a, a family of mice and they're all gathering in the corn and, and saving for the winter. But Frederick is laying about in the sun and they're saying, Frederick, you're not working. And he says, I am. And then in the winter, when it's really hard and grey and the world is cold and hard, he brings the colours of summer back to them. He tells them stories of the colours. Uh, Frog and Toad, the Frog and Toad stories, again, my children adored those, Arnold Lobel. And then there was another book that re was really magical between us. I have two children and, and they both adored this book and it's called Ears and the Secret Song. Mm. And again, it's a, a mouse to do with the harvesting the grain, but it's about, it's a very, actually, a, a really based on kind of indigenous ways of thinking that the, um, the song is about supporting the, the grain to come back each year. And it's very much about the relationship between humans harvesting, thanking the harvest before taking it and respectful taking of the harvest. Um, but it's just, it's very lovely the way it's put is this little mouse learning this song from her mum. And then the, the, the next decade is Biophilia. I've already mentioned Biophilia by Edward Wilson, a, a sort of seminal text that uh, was really influential on my thinking and and then the one I've also mentioned the goodness of rain belongs to the following decade and the final one I want to say for this decade I'm in my 60s now I'm almost 65 um, is a book that's been recognized a lot uh, in the last few years it's called braiding sweetgrass I'm actually listening to that at the moment on audio is, is Robin reading it yeah most of the way through it now and I read a chapter each morning yeah and it's and that's why I was thinking that the ears and the secret song actually is doing I never knew it of course but it's doing what she's talking about in terms of indigenous approaches yeah so that's um, braiding sweetgrass because we're looking at the book on the screen so obviously the listeners I'm not sure if we mentioned the name there but that's braiding braiding sweetgrass the subtitle is indigenous wisdom scientific knowledge and the teaching of plants mm -hmm. It's interesting because earlier you said about plants have a lot to teach us. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're actually the second person now to recommend that book. What I really like about it is, is that she is from an indigenous Native American um, heritage um, and also became a, a moss scientist. Oh. So she, you know, she studied science in the Western way. And what she's doing in the book is bringing the two sets of knowledge, the two ways of looking together 
and helping us see how scientific knowledge we don't chuck it out and say no we don't like that anymore yeah. it's how do we mesh the two mm. and learn from the combination of the two so that's one reason why I like it so much huge collection but that's me um if you're looking at me um you can see behind me is a huge library I can see it yes and reading is one of my lifetime's passion and I was young I never had a book out of my hands and I think that's continued so yeah uh, it's very hard to specify a book so I'm going to give you into your hand now a magic wand what are you going to do with it <laughs> well perhaps I I think I might be doing it in that three four years ago an idea grew in my mind it's another children's book called what do you do with an idea and once I read the book, somebody gave it to me as a present. I said, did you know how relevant that is to what's happened to me? And she said, no, didn't think about that. I just liked it as a book. Um, and um, basically in the book, this, this boy has an idea that keeps following around. And eventually the idea actually climbs up into his body and he starts to come alive. And then eventually the idea gets so big, it, it goes beyond his body and it starts influencing the world. And it's a nice way that this idea seems to have happened to me in that for I went into teaching in order to help grow the bond between children and the natural world. Um, at the time, I was most interested in how can we help children grow up to be the stewards that they need to be to look after the world. And then during all my time as an educator, I realized that nature looks after children. And in fact, it's, it's a reciprocal process. When you look after something, it looks after you back. You know, you care for something, it cares you back. And I certainly feel that with my garden. It's, I care for my garden, but my garden has looked after me for years and years. Um, and that's what I saw very much with, that, that this was a very two-way relationship. And I became really interested in how nature looks after young children um, and they both matter to me because you know when you have a child who grows up being looked after by nature they're going to grow into an adult who has to look after cannot harm the natural world I've grown this commitment to wanting to help children be outdoors more and when you talk about nature I think people think you need green nature you need living things for me, nature is sunlight, water, shadow, gravity. It's, you know, being out in the natural world and benefiting from everything it offers. And we are supposed to be there, aren't we? We were designed by evolution to be outside. And I think we're suffering from being inside. And maybe this is particularly important at the moment with COVID, that children are spending more time indoors. Mm. And this is an opportunity for actually for them to be outdoors more. So. A few years ago, I decided I got to the point in my life, I, I guess I turned 60 and I was thinking like, so um, I'm heading towards retirement. How am I going to keep things going from I've spent 20 years doing all of the 30 years doing all of this? How do I keep it going? And then this idea just grew of creating an organization that brings together all the people across the landmass of Britain and Ireland that are that share this commitment there's lots and lots and lots of dots all over the place of people who have this passion 
there's a growing number of outdoor nurseries, there's a growing number of people who are working in conservation ecological ideas with children. How can we um, help each of those people join up and be nourished by each other? As I hear this story so much, I'm working on my own, I'm giving out and I'm not getting back. Uh, I train other people, but I don't find the training I need to, you know, because I'm at that sort of further on the journey. Um, but that kind of that need for a peer network was really strong. And I'd also worked out because of the way I'd been working all over the country, uh, that there were some things that needed to be done that would really transform the situation. And a core to that is I wanted to make sure that we could never again forget how important it is for children to be outdoors. Mm -hmm. In my childhood and all the time before that, the assumption was that young children would be playing outdoors. And then that eroded and we got to the sort of millennium when, we, you know, turn of the century. And it seems like a lot of us had forgotten how important it was for children to be outdoors for long periods of time, every single day, getting the kind of experiences that give them really deep nourishment and development opportunities. So um, I feel like we forgot it and we're starting to remember it. So what I want to do is bring all these people who, are, who, who share this belief and drive who are trying to do something about the situation, join them all up and help them become something much stronger. And if I could, to create something that would be so strong, like felt, you know, when you make felt and you rub all the threads of the cotton together, the wool, sorry, not cotton, wool, and it becomes this sort of solid thing that you can't pull apart. Well, that's what I want to do. I want to create something that helps join everything up, bring people together, reinforce what they're doing, help them feel stronger and keep them going and give them the support that they need to keep going. Yeah. So, so this is the organisation Early Childhood Outdoors. That's right. Yes. So that's what happened was this thing came about, this idea burst out of me in the end. Uh, and I invited everybody I knew I'd come to know over 20 years of traveling all over the country, I invited them all to come together uh, in Sheffield three years ago. And we launched this idea called Early Childhood Outdoors. So it's not a membership organization, it's a participation. Um, I was talking with the, the team of people that helped drive it forward the other day, and we agreed that we didn't have a membership as such. You certainly don't. Um, pay a membership fee and, and get a magazine. Um, but there's a, a sense of belonging and a sense of participating. So that what we're trying to do is help everybody drive forward what they individually are trying to do mm. by linking everybody up and giving them that real inspiration and excitement. So what happened on the day when we brought 60 people like this together into a room was it just sparked off loads of things. And I didn't get to know about what was going on. It was just people met new people, found out their common interests and things emerge out of that. Yeah. And uh, so we produced a website and it's earlychildhoodoutdoors.org. The website explains a little, it needs a lot of development, but it's there's a little bit there now. Um, it explains what we're trying to do, our aims. It, it, describes our values and the values are very much about sharing, supporting, encouraging, amplifying. Um, 
and pushing the boundaries. You know, let's we've got to this far, let's go further. Um, and by supporting each other, we can go further. Uh, and then the major feature on the website and the, the thing that's really vibrant is that we have a blog, which is over a year old now. We produce a weekly blog. So there's 60 plus mm. posts on the blog. And the aim of the blog is for people who share this interest and passion. Um, you can sign up to receive the blog posts or you can just go and look at the website. Um, and the idea is that people can share what they're doing with everybody else and find other people who are wanting to do the same sort of thing. Mm. So it's very much aimed at people, educators who work with very young children from birth to seven. Um, there's a need for this for older children and learning through landscapes are very good at picking that up. What wasn't really there was a focus on the youngest children in nursery education. Mm. Um, we do have parent strand as well. Um, and obviously we're keen. What I would like to do is to raise parents' demand for their child to be outdoors. Okay. So parents are choosing nurseries because they go outdoors a lot. Or they're saying to the nursery, did my child go out today? And not being happy when they say, no, it was raining, so we didn't go out. Um, so that parents are helping to drive forwards what nurseries are actually providing for their child. Well, I think that's probably a good place to stop with. Keep that idea in mind that people can ask and request, you know, has your child, has my child been outdoors today? And if the answer is no, it's been raining. Well, we have rain gear. So thank you so much for all the work you've done. It's, it was lovely listening to you and all the work you've done. And thank you so much for writing Making a Mud Kitchen. <laughs> I should just mention that the Making a Mud Kitchen booklet that we've referred to is a free download on the yeah. internet. Great. Um, it's available on a website called muddyfaces.co.uk. Muddy Faces is, is the the organization I collaborated with on the booklet we produced it together and um, Liz who runs Muddy Faces has had every year for International Mud Day <laughs> which is the 29th of June um, every year she produces new resources to help people celebrate International Mud Day. Brilliant absolutely brilliant and people can get in touch with you through the website which we'll put all the links below or is there any other way you'd like people to? Uh, there's a contact page on the website that's probably the best way for people to follow things up. We also share on the website we share the events that we set up. Of course that's been you know on hold a little bit recently but we are planning um, online events and, and obviously in-person events once we can. Great. So I think all parents and teachers that are listening to the podcast go to earlychildhoodoutdoors.org. And thank you very much, Jan. You're very welcome. Thank you for letting me ramble on. Thank you for listening to Nature Magic. Don't forget to enter the February draw for the fantastic giveaway of over 100 euros of Irish gifts. Just review the podcast, take a screenshot and send an email to mary at burrnaturesanctuary.ie. Listen in next time to hear the absolute legend, Professor Temple Grandin speaking up for bovines.